Hello and welcome to Design Life with Price of Lies, a podcast series that explores design, what it is, how it works, and why it's important. Today, we are speaking with the team behind Cody Dock Rolling Bridge, a wonderful, whimsical bridge in the old Dockland area of East London. I'm joined by designer, artist, and architect Tom Randall Page, David Knight, Director of Design and Engineering at Fabricator Cake Industries, and Tim Lucas, Structural Engineer and Partner at Price and Myers. I'm your host, Chris Moore. Thank you all for joining me today. Uh, Tom, I might start with you. Can you tell me about Cody Dock itself and the context for this project? Yeah, sure. Um, so Cody Dock is a large uh, industrial dock, um, or former industrial dock, um, just off the Lee River in East London, near to Canning Town. Um, it fell out of service, I think. It was it was originally for um, um, it was it was a gasworks dock, so I think it was coal gas they were um, dealing with there, and um, it was in use until maybe the sixties, when at, at some point the, the ships got too big and all of the docklands in in that area um, were sort of replaced by ones further out. Um, and at that point, it was dammed and blocked off from the tidal lee, um, and it was used just as a what's called a balancing lagoon to take surface runoff um, and uh, periodically kind of flush that out into the into the Lee River. Um, so it was it was then abandoned for and, and sort of derelict for about 30 years um, and then rediscovered a, a decade or so ago um, by Simon when he was looking for somewhere to park his big houseboat. Um, and he... He found it in a, in a state of complete dilapidation and been largely filled with rubbish fly tipped from the industrial estate next door. And um, it had squatters and all sorts. And, and he uh, decided to try and find out who owned it and eventually found out that the Thames Water owned it and, and they didn't even know they owned it. Um, so he offered them, uh, he offered to take it off their hands for a peppercorn rate in, in return for doing a, a community project to rejuvenate it, clean it all up. And Social Enterprise, which was um, was founded uh, when he when he made this agreement with Thames Water um, uh, to, to rejuvenate this industrial dock um, with a kind of grassroots organisation and focus on you know the environment and education and and bringing back what was a, a bit of wasteland back to back to life um, and now it's a very thriving kind of place midway through its rejuvenation um, and it's got artist studios and there's currently on site a um, a community center um, and they do lots and lots of events there they have lots of volunteers and education programs and artists working there, etc. Um, Rowan Moore, in his review of the bridge in The Observer, called this part of London a, dis- a district unsteamrolled by the giant apartment blocks going up in much of the old docklands. Is that still the case, or, w- or will it eventually get consumed by that kind of development? Uh, it's an interesting place, because I think it, it, it lies on the boundary of Tower Hamlets and Newham. So always... It's, it's on the edge of both of their maps and both of their consciousnesses, I think. And so it has been very forgotten and just considered light industrial. And um, But you can see already on the Tower Hamlet side, 
the, the the towers of apartments coming up at a frightening pace. Um, so it's definitely changing very very quickly, um, and there's a some people are, are registering that change quicker than others um but but yeah it's things are things are changing it's a bit of an incoming tide across the river isn't it <laughs> you see it appearing out of the out of the mists as it comes towards the river but and yeah has it hasn't got over the river just yet but i, I suspect it will no and i think that um the lees also quite forgotten as a as a river all the areas around it seem to sort of turn their back on it um, and it was a very industrial thoroughfare. Um, but uh, un- unlike, you know, the Thames, which got the South Bank and stuff, uh, people live in, in Newham, a stone's throw from the Lee and don't even know that the Lee's there. And so I suppose part of this project is also about kind of refocusing and, and, and looking, looking in that direction more. Tim, can you uh, tell me how you three met? I always find this difficult on projects, especially when they've been going on for... <laughs> almost 10 years um, but but I think we met in 2014 uh, uh, at an opening for sculpture in the city uh, which is an annual sculpture fair that we, we, we helped do the engineering for the stability of all the sculptures they, they put them around the city of London and um, Tom's dad is an artist who had uh, one of the sculptures in that year his thing is very large heavy lumps of rock uh, so they definitely need to make sure they don't fall through into someone's basement. And we, I think you met at the opening, and, and you told me you had this idea uh, for a rolling bridge, and uh, you know, you're looking for someone to work it up with, an engineer to work it up with. So um, that was then, and we did some work back yeah, 2014, 2015, um, and then you know, I think established the idea uh, but with all these things they need funding to go forward. So... Uh, they, they went into hibernation for about the next seven years <laughs> before before coming back to life. Before, I, sorry, Tom. No, no, no. I, I had this idea that I wanted to present to Simon, uh, um, but before I presented it, I really wanted to be sure that I wasn't presenting something completely unachievable. Um, and I asked around various people, like who would be who would be the friendly engineer who might lend me half an hour over a coffee to 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 look at something look at a crazy idea and uh, your tim's name came back several times from several different people so before we get into talking about the actual bridge itself and the concept behind it um so david i know that you've worked with price and myers before on a number of different projects as well how did you sort of get um sort of brought into this one uh, this one was was something that I had noticed uh, back in its early days, back in its social media um, stardom days, and thought, "Oh, that looks fun. I wonder if it'll ever get built." And I worked with Tom on a couple of competitions prior to prior to this, and sort of knew him through that, and knew Tim through through industry events, um, and just expressed an interest. I suppose when when I heard it was was coming back and there was funding, and thought, "Well, I'll get in touch and see." see whether there's an opportunity here to to help out um and you know we went through a tender process to 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 become involved and become main contractor and fabricator um uh but the idea really was what what engaged us with the project the the strangeness of it and the weirdness of it uh, and also the opportunity to work with these two i think these sorts of projects only ever live if um if you can find an interested and enthusiastic mm. fabricator, so David, absolutely. 
Um, I mean, Joe's background is, is, a, is a bridge engineer. He's been very modest in his. Uh, <laughs> I'm just a bridge fabricator. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. as a bridge engineer, you know that projects like this don't come along every day. I was talking about it earlier, and do you, you know, maybe one or two moving bridges are built in the UK every year um, of of any interest to to the wide profession. Um, and you jump at the chance to be involved whenever they're available. Um, and my, yeah, as, as Tim says, as a, as a bridge engineer, I knew quite how strange this idea was. Um, uh, and the opportunity was, was too good to pass up, really. And I think, I think I only did it because I didn't know how strange it was. <laughs> uh, and it was my naivety, having never done a bridge in my life, that thought, oh, well, maybe we'll do a completely different one that no one's ever done before. Yeah. I think that I think that naivety in anything is so important, isn't it? Mm. Because if you, if you, if we all knew what we knew now, you know, I'd have the same. You know, all, I think you call not just this project, but many projects in your life. You know, you've never even started if you, you know, But by the time you're, you're, you know, you're in there, you know, you go through that low point of the project, but then you, know, you come out into something wonderful. It's, There's a Ted Happold quote, isn't there? It talks about the confidence to build, and I think the naivety to build is a sort of. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> And analogous to that, that we think we can probably work out all the problems Maybe along the way, but we, we, we haven't got there yet. We'll, we will get on with it and we'll see where we get to. Maybe it should be the uh, naivety to start. And then the, <laughs> the confidence the, to carry on. <laughs> or the uh, big-headedness to carry on. Well, you don't know what think, you don't know. Yeah, you think it's simple to start with, then you find out just how complicated it is in order to make it look simple by the end. Yeah. Yeah, well, the complexity kept coming with this job, didn't it? <laughs> so, Tom, tell us about the bridge itself. There'll be some people listening to, to this um, podcast that don't know Cody Dock Bridge yet. Um, so tell us about the bridge itself and where the, the idea came from. Sure. So it's a relatively short span uh, opening footbridge, uh, bridging across the neck of, of the dock, um, which is the connection between the river, the tidal lee, and, and the, the dock itself. And um, currently that dock is dammed, as I mentioned earlier, and in order to reflood the dock, uh, currently the top of the dam is the bridge, basically is the crossing point. So in order to reflood the dock and use it for boats again, they need a new crossing point uh, to replace the dam. Um, and that, that bridge needs to be able to open to let boats through underneath, um, particularly when the tide's high. Um, so that was a brief, really, and there was a plan already in place to use a kind of off-the-shelf product bridge that they were going to buy from Holland, a kind of bascule type. Um, and I offered to counter-propose something that I thought would be more interesting uh, and more unique and something that people would actually come and come to visit rather than just walk across and forget. Um so I suppose there wasn't really a formal brief apart from to do better than that bridge that was proposed. Um, and the, one of the particular things about this site is that it's they haven't got very much land around. So this bridge design that we came up with uh, is quite unusual in that it, it keeps really within the um, footprint of the of the water rather than spilling out onto the land on both sides. Um, so the design itself uh, is, uh, it's, it's almost kind of box frame structure with a, with a square portal 
at either end that you you walk through connected by a deck which is the spanning element and in order to let boats through this box rolls in the direction of the of the um of the canal and uh in order for a square to roll it, the corners of that square need to be picked up by a particular shaped track um so the corners are kind of accepted by valleys and the straight sides roll over kind of hills in the track. Uh, and there's just something very um, playful and something counterintuitive about a box rolling. You look at it, you don't think it should, it's going to move in that way. And then it does. And it's a bit of a confounding moment. And I think that's what attracts a lot of people to it. Now, f- forgive me and my layperson's point of view, but wouldn't around portal frame with so much easier and perhaps just as much fun uh, certainly easier <laughs> um i think like i think if you saw the round portal uh you would pretty quickly register that that was going to roll um as, as wheels around normally um and yeah there isn't there is an efficiency to the square as well because you get the full width of the you know the, the the passage you can pass pass through is the full width of the bridge, um, but it did provide all sorts of complexities uh, to, to really understanding how a square can roll. You can roll any shape if you have the right shape rail. Pretty much, the rail just has to be kind of accommodating of the of the the ins and outs of whatever shape it is. I just thought that that shape that you're describing is actually the Thames Barrier. Isn't mm. it? It's the it's the lifting portals so if you want to see what it looks like go down the Thames Barrier when they have one on the dock when one of the dams lifted up mm. it's not as exciting but yeah I mean it would be far simpler and uh, it's a it, around would be a big cogwheel and there are bridges with with big cogwheels that rotate in in that way wheel, is that? Well, sorry a bridge that's a lifting yeah but ro- rolling bascules work in the same way where you have a round tr- track uh, with a sort of round end of the bridge like like a circle and it just moves backwards and rolls back, and rolls back on the track and, and back, back into place um, and I, I I think although I haven't checked this assertion there is a, a bridge with round hoops on the end that, that does roll in a similar way to Cody Dock so um, it has it it is more understood that behaviour mm. um, but as Tom says isn't doesn't have the Visual attraction, but also the, some of the efficiencies. I think the size it would be much bigger, wouldn't it? Mm. Because actually, to fit through the you know, round and, and circle, circle square down a square, and would travel bigger. further as well. Yeah, because and of that bigger diameter, the track would be longer. There isn't space. No. So um, maths is easier. Side. And I'd love to say material. that this was all pre. Uh, that I thought about all this and I knew that circle wouldn't work because it was going to not fit on the site. But, but we are rationalising um, on the podcast live as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't. <laughs> now, part two of this podcast, which we have actually already recorded, is with a, a, an American mathematician by the name of Stan Wagon. Um, and I know that Stan was one of the mathematicians who helped inspire the track of which you speak of. Tim, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of an insight as to you know, sort of what you've, I know that you saw something at a, a museum in New York and, and it actually what the thinking is behind the, uh, the sort of the movement of the square on the rail. About sometime after I met Tom initially and now, and then my kids were quite a lot younger than they are now, we went to this museum called Moomath in New York, which had um, some square wheeled tricycles, um, which you can pedal along. And they're on these humpy tracks 
And what it, what turns out is that the the uh, geometry that Tom described earlier, where, where the where the bridge rolls over hills, is is uh, called a catenary. And a catenary is most familiar to engineers as being the shape that a hanging chain takes under its own weight. So we all think about catenary curves being suspension bridges and things like that. So it's quite surprising that such a familiar piece of engineering geometry is actually what 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 turns out to be the sort of definition of this of this curve that that um, allows the square block to roll. Um, I, I think we kind of started to understand that in the early days, but it was more, and, and you'd made this MDF model, which which was the social media stardom, which which worked, and you figured it out, I think, by tracing it with Rhino as well, so just, just tracing stages of the model um, going through. So, so that's the that's the base math, and then the complexity is the rounded corners, which um, lead to sort of the whole thing exploding in complexity. Um, so you know, Alfred, who you'll hear in the part two, and and and, and Robin um, kind of really got into that over over literally over Christmas um, in twenty 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 one one yeah. yeah so so sort of Christmas crackers and mm. hardcore elliptical differentials <laughs> order of the day but, but it was solved and, and yeah but there was kind of some discrepancies because with all these things there's a mathematical theory but then when you model it and there was some times it wasn't quite matching until we'd get that so ironed out all the kinks in the in the theory well it's interesting because I, I think that like ndf model even the one before that we made on your your laser cutter mm. um they did work but they were at a scale where maybe the tolerances were a bit more al- allowed for uh things not to be as precise uh and they'd been done in a very analog way by me, almost almost in the way you would with a drawing board. You know, I was doing it on a computer, but I wasn't using um, parametric modeling tools or anything like that. So I was literally sort of rotating and tracing uh, the, the path of the movement. And then when we got further into trying to define it in a more mathematical way, it suddenly got quite a lot more complicated. Well, it's just the path and then there's the pegs. So all the pegs, the pegs on the uh, step back from the, it has pegs. It has okay. So this is like ne- never-ending levels of complexity that you never even thought of at the beginning. But it's important that it has a rolling surface and a toothed peg surface, and it's important that those are in the same plane, so that if they're if they're in different planes, then they rub against each other effectively, so the thing would wear. So. The bridge is actually on, rolls on a smooth surface, but it has these round pegs and it has these teeth that interface with that. And the shape of those is very bespoke and actually very different from the from that MDF model that we have. We looked a lot at um, like rack and pinion uh, railways, mountain railways. So they have a similar theory in that you've got all of your normal rail railway wheels that take the weight of the train, and then you've got a cog which stops the train sliding. Uh, and it's similar with the bridge. It's a heavy thing. It sits on round or smooth, smooth square wheels. Um, and then you've got pegs and a, a toothed kind of cog, which interface to stop it sliding down the hills. So, so there was this phase where, uh, before Michael Thurgood, who helped us with the mechanical engineering, came on board where we thought we could do it with a sort of stepped, serrated edge, um, which he said was complete 
uh, rubbish that's <laughs> happened from this this thing where your where your bearing surface and your tooth surface isn't isn't in the same plane. Tom, I um, I read you quoted as saying that this project involved a PhD's worth of brand new mathematics to design, and it certainly sounds every inch that. David, I wonder how it was obviously that there's that complexity in the design of it. What you know, fabricating it must have been a devilish task. Yes, it was, and the design was still going on as we were starting to fabricate it, which was. Um, uh, which was good fun, and, and and as as a bridge engineer, that process, that collaborative process of of coming in, seeing something that I could see had a had a program end date and a need to order steel at a particular point and to make it, and uh, all of the complexity that goes on in in the making process, and yet to be trying to input into a, a design process to to meet our deadlines, um, from a fabrication point of view. Um, the challenges were about weight, um, about keeping the mass down uh, of the deck, particularly, um, so that we didn't have to add too much counterweight to the to the to the structure, um, uh, but also to bring it within standard um, sizes of plates, standard methods of manufacture uh, that didn't didn't require too much in the way of intensive manual work. Uh, and the way we work as fabricators is, is very digital heavy. Uh, and so one of the first things we did was to to remodel all of the um, the structure in, in 3D to generate cutting patterns uh, that minimise the amount of welding we have to do or the amount of bending we had to do. Um, and to ensure that accuracy was taken all the way from the mathematics through to uh, computer control cutting and, and pieces arriving in our workshop that we could we could stick together with uh, with hot metal. Um, and from my point of view, that complexity came in, in managing information flow and ensuring that what we were building was as accurate and as, as tightly, tightly constrained as we possibly could and using all of my team's knowledge about fabrication processes to, to realise these these fine details and tolerances. It's interesting you say about weight because actually um, often in structures that form part of the built environment, weight isn't important. Mm, exactly. There's that, five, that famous uh, Buckminster Fuller quote, how much does your building weigh, Mr. Foster? And it was all in the foundations. But but with, with the bridge, it really was important mm. because, the, because the center of gravity of the whole thing has to be in the middle of that square in order for it to be able to roll easily. Mm. And so, you know, the deck is literally was literally um, you know, bits drilled out of all the steel stiffeners and you know, absolutely made as light as it could be so that the, you know, the because you literally couldn't, it, the, I mean, there would be a time when you just ran away with the weight and you wouldn't be able to turn, so it was really critical. Mm-hmm. Even the dedication plates that have the names of everyone involved in the project, um, both donors and, and people involved with making of it, um, they contribute to the counterweight uh, weight and so even choosing the fonts that were going to be cut out from those dedication plates had a bearing on the uh, counterweight. Uh, so it was ev- everything was... I think what was one of the very neat things about this project was that everything seemed to be completely connected, like mm-hmm. all the parameters of a thing. You change one thing and the knock-ons were, were sometimes endless. You know, um, and, you know, that changed the weight of this and then the box had to get thicker and that changed the length of the track and that 
knocks onto this, knocks onto this, knocks onto this. And I, I think in in retrospect, we we focus on those technical challenges, don't we? But it, in at the time, we had the added pressure that both the client and the funding was disappearing at speed, and we had a date by which we had to be on site, and that's why things were happening in parallel that's why alfred was doing differential equations on the christmas table because these dates and these program pressures and the budget budgetary pressures were all mounting up at the same time and none of that is unusual in construction and we sort of brush it under the carpet a little but it was coupled with a high level of technical challenge um, that meant we were all having to work outside our usual defined contractual boundaries Actually, it had to roll at a certain time as well, didn't yeah. it? it had to, there was a date where it had to roll, and if it was, didn't roll, then there was no... Yeah. So Simon didn't get the money. One yeah. of these funny things with a project that takes seven years, and you have a little flurry of activity at the beginning, and then there's like five years of being on hold and waiting for someone to say yes to a funding application, and then suddenly they say, and the rest of it's got to be done within 12 months. <laughs> and you're like, but what about all the R&D that... We, uh, all yeah. the things we need to work out, yeah. and it seems crazy because there was there was years where I'd spend every day thinking, at some point, like, where's the logjam in this project? Who do I need to call? How do I get this thing moving? And then suddenly you have no time. Came in a rush. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's worth pointing out again for our listeners who haven't actually seen the bridge or visited it yet that the weight is important because this is not uh, mechanically uh, like an engine-driven, battery-driven. Uh, movement for this bridge is that it's, it's it's hand cranked yeah yeah so it was quite important um well i was really interested in uh victorian infrastructures and and the fact that this is on on the canals and deals with barges and going through locks i, I was helping a friend move a boat uh during the process of designing this bridge and uh going through all these locks and winding all these handles and looking at this amazing uh technical equipment that is completely low tech and really enjoying that and thinking let's try and do something like that um so yeah it's the the bridge's motion is controlled by two hand winches um one that kind of pulls in and one that lets out um and there was also an idea i think that uh, as soon as you get involved with having electronics or hydraulics or some kind of engine um you also have another type of complexity added where you've then got to have sensors or some cutouts and all these kind of safety things because the motor doesn't automatically register that it's something's gone wrong or there's a horrible noise, um, whereas a person does. So there was a kind of nice haptic checking process to, to having it manual as well. And it's one of the beauties of the form, isn't it, that... This counterweighted system, weight at the top of the arches, lightweight deck, and the centre of mass of the entire system in the middle of the hoop means that you, while it looks like the deck is being lifted in the air, you aren't actually lifting any weight. All you're overcoming as you wind is friction. And so the whole thing rolls along a horizontal axis um, and you're just overcoming inertia and friction and, and, and keeping it going and not not trying to pull tons and tons of steel up into the air which is what you imagine would be happening 
Yeah, I did read on uh, one of the threads on an internet forum about the bridge, someone saying, yeah, I hope that there's protection around this so that people can't get their hands trapped in it. And someone said, I think it takes like half an hour. Is that right? To, to <laughs> quite slow. Yes, you have to have your hands sitting there for quite some time. Really, It'd be a very boring yourself. kind of Bond villain. Though. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, uh, you, you mentioned to me earlier before we came on air that, you know, sort of construction is, is a people business and, and you know, that... Um, how did you engage with the people with the design and with the finished object? The, it, it's one of the things that I've always loved about the construction industry is this um, belief that by everybody that's involved in it that they can point at a building and go, well, I did that, um, despite the fact that 5,000 other people also point at that building and say, I did that. There is, there's a personal joy people have in creating something tangible um, and the way that we work as a business is about engaging those people, the fabricators, the makers, the craftspeople, uh, in um, in what they're making. Uh, and this this sort of this object is a prime example of that. It's a it's a piece where everybody in in the workshop, when I showed them the original videos, went, "I I don't understand that. I don't know how it's going to work, but it does look cool." I can't believe we're going to make it. And and everybody who has touched it, has welded it, has drilled holes in it, has lifted it up, um, has has expressed huge joy that it, it it exists and is immensely proud of the object that has been um created. Um and that that people side of our industry is often forgotten in the technical uh and um mathematical wonder of what we do but but we provide joy in a in a in a haptic tactile way uh to, to a lot of people tim uh how did you feel the first time you saw the bridge live and in action i felt a bit sick actually um because it looks a bit like a listing ship um and a listing ship always gives me a slight sort of squiggly tummy and, and, it, and it looks like it's sinking which is a bit weird um uh but it was you know i mean contractors can be really you know i was gonna they do things like lift the bridge up without telling you which happened before once but you know it, it was fine i mean we were kind of like you know there was no there, was, there wasn't too much mystery but it did look it does look a bit sick when it's, when it's, especially when it's upside down it looks like it's capsized I, mean, <laughs> I would hasten to add we did tell you we were going to move it but yeah it was certainly a nervous day I think I think we all were wondering what would happen when we first first rotated it well, the same question to you, Tom How well we did feel? it we did it very quietly like with no one watching it was kind of like it's not the kind of thing you want to do with a crowd around test something for the first time. So, um, and there's always going to be like teething problems and, and bits of. Okay, it's very wet. It rained, it rained a lot. Not not many people around. It was yeah. Some kind of. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very low key. Wasn't it was, it? Yeah. I suppose we could have we could have done it in the middle of the night. That would have been even more incognito. <laughs> but um, we're trying to stick to normal working hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean it was amazing to see it roll. It was fantastic super exciting um i was incredibly nervous as i think everyone was really that there'd be something that wouldn't work 
Um, but I mean, all credit to well to everyone, and particularly to you know the guys on site to actually get the accuracy that was needed in in what is a very big object. Um, and the tolerances we're talking about are in the single figures of millimeters uh, in, in in most dimensions. So that's kind of that's almost kind of furniture levels of precision um, on on an on an architectural object or an engineering scale object and that those tolerances normally you know 10 times that <laughs> on a piece of architecture there's actually a very funny bit of video we recorded of alfred in in your works when um when the when the tooth trap wouldn't fit around the pegs and he has this sort of sort of nervous <laughs> sort of adjustment of his head yeah even earlier but but that kind of what you have to do as a designer is 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 take responsibility for stuff and actually, you know, so you know you're putting your personal reputation, your self worth, and money, and all sorts of other things on the line, and you're saying something will work, and you're convincing people to spend many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds, following your idea. So it's like it is, it can't get nerve wracking. But we yeah, we talked about and. Um, yeah, you talk about that nervousness of, of of taking your ideas and taking it forward, but I think it with experience comes knowledge of where those risks lie. And going back to your point about tolerance, it's something we collectively identified very early that the the challenge about tolerance was was not necessarily in the steelwork, which we could computer cut and control um, uh, and make reasonably accurately. It was in the foundations and the supports, um, and in this instance, well, in civil engineering terms, tolerances on concrete on a good day are about plus or minus 25 millimetres, which just wouldn't cut it. And by having identified that as a, an issue, we literally did get furniture makers to make the formwork for the concrete. And that's how we controlled it. You know, they were they were concentrating it on it to a much greater extent than you would do otherwise because I drilled into them. You know, this has to be right. This, you know, you're making a chair. You're not making a, a dam. So to get this bit right, and the rest will follow. Um, and th- and those, I think, from my point of view, from the fabrication point of view, those were the biggest challenges and the reality of building uh, something uh, that needs that level of tolerance from a designer. Well, I was, I, I teach a bit uh, architecture and with students who maybe are working on CAD or, you know in the computer and they'll be designing stuff down to the, you know, down to the millimeter, uh, every, every element of, of something. And then you have to remind them that in the end, you know, it's, it's on site and it's a big, dirty, great hole in the ground. And, um, there's someone kind of pouring concrete into it. And so you may have drawn that to the millimeter and we, we had a incredibly precise, uh, various incredibly precise 3D models uh, of this bridge and the foundations. But there's all these th- things that happen in the processes of making. And I learned an awful lot about, you know, about steelwork uh, in this project, in how much things distort under the, um, you know, the heat from the welding process um, that I just, uh, yeah, I didn't, didn't, didn't sort of know that much about. I sort of, I know about it with wood and like mm. um, expansions and contractions and, things in that way but um yeah and also the thermal expansion of the whole bridge uh you know it's a different length on a hot day than a cold day so um, and a different shape and a different shape and also depending on which way up it is because it'll heat the top or the bottom 
depending on which way up the bridge is. So mm-hmm. there's just suddenly all of these ways in which this thing is kind of flexing and moving kind of imperceptibly, but enough to cause problems if you don't, um, yeah, if you don't realize that's going to happen. So what are the practical considerations when that happens and it's a, you know it's a, essentially a different bridge than when someone comes to move it on a hot day is a cold day i guess um yeah uh, it is and it's you know we have built enough tolerance uh that the the hoops do sort of slightly shift from their parallel position um to being slightly inclined to one another um but we've managed to put enough tolerance either side of the kind of normal that um that it doesn't jam up. Yeah, the practical consideration really is that you don't want there to be any change for the user. The user has to experience it, not have to understand that it's an organic thing that changes um, day to day. But to to do that, you have to understand how it will change and to, to, to build all of that into the... You mean bridges aren't allowed to have good days and bad days? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so who is the user? How often? Uh, who's responsible for actually moving it, and how often does it happen? And well, it, it's in a funny um, sort of slightly teenage position at the moment. Of like, it, it, the, the dam is still there, so it, you can still walk across the dam. So you've got two bridges right next to each other at the moment, and the dock is not yet reflooded because they're still working on restoring the brickwork. Once that dam comes down, um, which should be in the next twelve months, there will be uh it will suddenly all fall into place and make sense i think uh because they'll be able to bring boats through which will necessitate the opening um it'll in 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 that situation uh it will be a little bit like a lock with a lock keeper so you would uh call ahead and uh, arrange for the bridge to be opened it's not going to have huge amounts of traffic underneath it um, because it is a dead end dock, so it'll just be boats coming in and out of their mooring, um, and eventually, when they open a dry dock in there, which is planned, there will be also the the business of the dry dock. So, however many boats they're working on um, coming in and out as well. But we expect it to probably need to open around once a week. I think more relevant is how much people want to open it. Um, <laughs> which seems to be a lot more than once a week. Uh, and uh, already Simon has said that he's going to have a, um, a timetable put up on the website so that people can people know when to come to see it in action. And just for context, the boats are houseboats, are they? Is that, or yeah, it's, there's a bit of a lack in London of spaces for large-scale houseboats. I mean, there's lots of narrowboats on the canal, um, but the, the larger kind of ones that you see on the Thames um, there are quite a lot of people living in those and there's a bit of a shortage of large-scale moorings. So it'll be large-scale moorings for live and work boats. Um, I think there's going to be space for about seven or eight within the dock. Um, and then there's going to be a, a dry dock for, for maintaining and restoring those kind of boats as well. You mentioned that um, this is a bit of a placemaker for Cody Dock itself and that there's a creative artistic and maker community already sort of developing uh, around the dock. Have you had feedback from, from those people and, and sort of what, how happy they are? And yeah, it's really, it's really nice. I think like a lot of the people who um, work there also had some, in some way worked on the bridge, you know, were involved. Uh, so there's quite a good sense of ownership about that. And I think people 
do register that it's a pretty special, unusual thing that they're proud to have there. Uh, and it's been nice. They have started doing events at Cody Dock, kind of community events. They had a spring event a few weeks ago, and I, I went down to see it, and they had sort of, you know, the school choir singing there, and uh, they were making fresh pizzas and all of that kind of stuff going on, kind of lovely, wholesome things. Um, but what was really nice to see was they, they just opened and closed the bridge just as a kind of signifier of an event. Um, so it's already kind of entered into um, almost kind of like ritual uh, objects type. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, Tim, was sustainability a, a consideration as you were sort of thinking about the design of this bridge? I mean, it's always tricky, isn't it? That, that someone said to me the other day, is it a low-carbon bridge? And you can't really build bridges out of super low-carbon materials. So it is made of steel, but it is surprisingly efficient because we had that drive for lightness in making the counterweight the same way as the deck. And it, it doesn't actually have much metal in it. It's very thin. It's five millimetres thick. It was going to be four. We had to make it five for extra corrosion protection. And it uses... I mean, the counterweight is actually just scrap. It's scrap material, it's scrap concrete that would have been thrown away, and scrap rebar that's been put in there to make it more dense. So, so in a way, it uses up material that, that you know, repurposes you know, mass in, in different ways. So, but it is, it is surprisingly efficient on the, on, on, on the, it's not called scores racing, it's called scorbs. 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 Additional B to, to add bridges in yeah, there. Yeah, so we're pretty, I mean, mm. at the time, I mean, when we were developing, we think it's pretty, you know, it's just a pretty um, extravagant idea, and it's, you know, you know but actually it, it, it doesn't come out too badly. And it's also, it has a fairly low span, small span, so it's only six or seven metres. Eight metres, yeah. yeah. So eight metres, so, yeah, it's, yeah, that all helps. David, Tim mentioned um, uh, corrosion there. Uh, how, long, how long is it built to last and does it need what, what, a maintenance schedule to keep on top of things? Well, it, maintenance is, is the key for any moving bridge. You can't, you can't set them up and forget them. They will, they will uh, deteriorate over time. And so there is a, a heavy maintenance, not heavy, a, a maintenance schedule, I should say, that the, the owner and the client will, will have to... To, to engage with um, but it has been designed such that the really invasive and really expensive maintenance um, actions aren't aren't required it's made of weathering steel or corten as it's, it's sometimes known um, weathering steel has inbuilt corrosion resistance it perform, uh, generates a protective patina um, which means that you then don't have to repaint it or refinish it over time so that should last for a, a, a very long time without any any work and um, the handrails are galvanized uh, elsewhere the stainless steel so we haven't left um, materials that are liable to corrode out in the out in the atmosphere or required things to be repainted um, things like the mechanical elements have a lifespan um, but again they're they're specified such that they have a, a reasonable lifespan and they will be replaced appropriately um, and then it's just a matter of keeping it it well greased and um, the real um, joy from a maintenance point of view an ongoing use point of view on this project is about the wearing surfaces uh, and on any moving bridge there is always an interface that moves and wears um, and this was something we've touched on before about the track and the uh, minimizing that wear 
But here, um, sort of collectively, we decided, well, let's make the wearing surface about some, out of something that's easy to replace and can be replaced without uh, high-skilled, high-technical, high-cost elements. So that the wearing surface is um, large oak blocks um, which sit on the track um, uh, and, and uh, are formed around the hoops. And those, if they do wear, and they will wear and rot, can be cut off a similar size piece of oak cut to size and, and bolted back into place and that should be a simple operation for whoever owns it in 40 or 50 years or whenever they need to be, be changed. Tom, uh, I'll ask the question, was there any uh, thought around the, the potential for vandalism, sort of what access people might have to it in the dark of the night? Yeah, I, mean, I think people always want to play with stuff, don't they? Um, there, there is. I mean, it's it's locked in place when it's in its rest position for walking across. So, if someone did come and cut the cable or do anything like that, it's not going to go anywhere, and it's it's locked in that position. So it would then be hard to open it, but then it would be it be a question of fixing that damage. And you can't ever, I think, completely remove the potential of someone to damage something. Um, so. Yeah, I think it, it it is a consideration, and what we what we wanted to avoid was that you know someone could come and cut a cable, and that that would cause it to suddenly roll and move or something like that. So there was quite a lot of attention paid to that, um, but it's also quite. I think it will become much safer there as there's more residents. So as those um, boats become uh, the dock becomes occupied by houseboats suddenly the kind of passive surveillance of the whole place makes it feel less of an industrial wasteland that can be mucked about with and more of someone's backyard. Uh, Tim, are there any plans for the three of you to collaborate on anything uh, in the future? Um, well, we'd love to. Yeah, I mean, there's always, uh, you know, there's always new projects out there, aren't there? And there's always opportunities to build with you know, different places and different things. So nothing on the drawing board right at the moment. But um, you, know, you never know. So, tell me about the collaborative design process involved in the bridge. Well, I think because of the the timeframes involved and the 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 newness of the idea, um, uh, it, it required that we all um, collaborate incredibly tightly in this project. And some of those meetings were were some of the like, most exciting, best design meetings I've been in. I think because. Uh, it felt like uh, everyone was being incredibly honest about what they did and didn't know and trying incredibly hard to solve problems within or without their area of expertise. And, and so it just felt like a bunch of people scratching their heads and trying to work out the best solution. And that was that's always a really nice position to be in in a project, I think. And it's really lacking so often um, where people are very guarded and they're trying not to take responsibility for things that are outside of their field for, for legal reasons, things like that. And this felt like there just needed to be uh, a trust and an openness. It's one of those meetings often where you, you go in and you leave your label at the door. You, you, you are no longer the fabricator or the architect or the structural engineer. You're there to, to deliver the project and you go in with your knowledge and your experience and therefore you bring something in that is particular to you um, but it doesn't it doesn't stay within your discipline, uh, and I think that's the best 
collaboration. Uh, you come out of a room and not not able to identify where that idea came from or who it came from, but so, to know that it's been brought in by, in many cases, decades of collective experience in different fields, think, diversity of thought. I think that idea of you know, not knowing where an idea came from is a sign that you've had a really good, mm. very collaborative, very uh, open design process. I mean, the, some of the best projects I've done, we can't remember who thought of what, you know, it just it just came out in the conversation. But I remember we were particularly focused on the section through the track, mm. which which was an amazing section and there's but we had that sketchbook with the wall of sections which all the you know shared the common things but also slightly different, you know, very you know, how it rolled, where the burying surface was, what locked it in position. Uh, what the section shape of the structure was, where the steel was, where there's timber tire that, that's mm. on the bridge now. Um, how did the actual edge of the dock and how did we form that step in the concrete? Was it a step into the concrete or was it a there was a separate rail at some point where, the, where, where we kept the brick where mm. it was and we had it on a rail? It, it was you know, 30 or 40 different sections gradually evolving and sometimes going down slightly blind alleys and coming back and you know, eventually leading to where we got to. I was going back through my sort of filing and, and looking at these, I have these like folders full of kind of like images that, like inspiration images or reference images that I've grabbed off Google image search or something. And they vary really, really wildly uh, from sort of like pieces of Victorian infrastructure. And so suddenly there was a whole period I was looking at like tank tracks and caterpillar tracks on on mini diggers and you know you just start kind of like clutching at all of these like maybe oh maybe it's something maybe maybe that's maybe that gives us a hint for how it should be or um and quite, I, I do really enjoy that process I think it's quite an interesting question in the context of ai and what everyone's very interested in at the moment of like yeah you know, I, I i read a um quote a few years ago now and i don't know if it's too relevant that the the, the the two most the, the two least likely jobs to be automated by AI would be hairdresser and structural engineer but <laughs> I don't know actually where it came from <laughs> but, I, I, but I do try and imagine that kind of process being automated and it does seem like that might be a stretch too far because you're, I guess with AI you're relying on published knowledge or received which, and what we were trying to produce was something that took tiny bits from a tank track or tiny bits from like how you would step a Victorian dock or like what would happen if um, the, the thing kicked in. So the, the variables must be enormous and what we can hold in our mind as a group of designers is really interesting isn't it because we're not sort of there's no book that we can point to something mm -hmm. really, really just trying to produce it out of thin air and it's not often the way you have something that is so first principles that you that you you can't reference a previous. I mean, there isn't some bridge engineer and bridge rolling bridge especially, mm -hmm. but the rolling bascules and other kinds of bascule. But but this is um, yeah, this is really unique. And you and you rely on bits of knowledge that you don't consider knowledge or fact or you know some vaguely remembered visit to a museum or a, an idea. I saw a picture once. Or have we thought about this in a different way? Like this thing that has bears no resemblance to the bridge, but but is becomes a reference, and those 
those bonfires of ideas that you know try it fail it do it again think about it again go away sleep on it have a drink think about something else that might be a, um, and they're, they're fascinating they're intense periods in a, in, a, in a project and it was on this project but in retrospect they're fascinating collective um, thinking exercises and that's what's what's really exciting about mm. it yeah and we're sort of referencing everything from like yeah from like tank tracks to basketry to gate stops to I don't know there was just so many different ideas that were kind of coming together that, or rebar cages yeah um, as an aesthetic you talked about leaving your label at the door. That process sounds an awful lot like you must have also let your, left your egos at the door. That's a, you know, the, the, to not sort of really understand where an idea comes from would take all of you to sort of go, I, I'm not laying claim to that. Yeah, well, I, I felt quite, in a way, I felt quite re- relaxed about the design because I felt like it's a really clear idea. And so now it's about collaboratively making that possible and uh yeah it's a very simple idea so there isn't there isn't much more it can be like uh yeah and and you can strip a lot away from this and as long as it's a rolling square it's still gonna gonna hold its own um so at that point it was just like anyone's solutions are valid and (laughs) yeah and i think ego Ego goes with claiming credit, and claiming credit sometimes comes from when you're worried that you're not going to be publicly involved, or, or, um, uh, or various other ways that it might not be be seen as your work. But I think on on this project, we were all so excited to be involved that you know, just to just to have been involved was enough. Um, but really, ego was not anywhere to be seen. In, in the meetings that we had, the bit, the bit I was worried about was when we put the animation out, and then we had uh, five years of waiting, and I was like, "God, I hope someone else doesn't do it first. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been really bad. That would have been really bad. I would have been really galling. But I was like, as long as we're doing it, yeah, I'm exactly. <laughs> That's actually, we're, all, we're all proud of this as well. Yeah, <laughs> it was actually quite a funny moment where Rob, who is is the, is the associate here, who, who was working on it. Uh, we were having staff review in a very cold outdoor cafe in Hackney Wick in lockdown in December 2020, I think. And that's uh, when you, you know, as we all remember, you couldn't go inside. Or you seems a long time ago now. But um, and, and and Rob was saying, you know, this year I really wouldn't mind doing a bridge because we often talk about what, what projects you'd like to do in the upcoming year. And my phone rang, and it was Tom. <laughs> <laughs> saying it's got the funding <laughs> thank you Tom <laughs> whoop <laughs> <You're in laughs> staff review action completed <laughs> well on that note I would like to thank you all very much for joining me today uh, as I mentioned earlier this is part one of a two part episode on the Cody Dock Rolling Bridge um, the work of mathematician Stan Wagon played a significant part inspiring the bridge design um, and in part two Tom uh, and one of our uh, engineers here at Price and Myers, Alfred, will talk with Stan from his Colorado home to further explore the numbers behind this wonderful new London landmark. 
If you haven't already been down to Cody Dock, I would encourage you to do so. It is an absolute joy. Thank you very much for your time.